Hello, my name is Sally, and I'm going to read the first reading today from Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 19, where the Apostle Paul expands on righteousness through faith. It's on page 1603 of your Bibles. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let's continue reading chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be granted to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name's Tom. I'm one of the ministers here. I reckon everyone likes to get a tick. A tick of approval, that is. If you're a student and you get an essay back, you want to see a nice fat tick at the end of each paragraph, don't you? As well as a nice high number at the end. If you're writing something for publication, you live for the moment when your editor or manager says, yes, press published, this is ready to go to print. If there's a quality inspection or an audit at your work, you want to be the one whose work is deemed 100% compliant. Earlier this week, I was at a parents' night at Epping Boys High. And at the beginning, the principal got up and asked all of us parents to put our phones on silent. Now, I knew the school's catchphrase on these matters, and so I murmured to myself, off and away all day. And the principal beamed at me. 
and said, if we had a positive behaviour system for parents, you would get a tick right now. (laughs) It was the highlight of my week. (laughs) On the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, there is an in-crowd of people who have a blue tick next to their name. And this blue tick used to mean that they had verified your identity, but these days it pretty much just means you've paid a monthly fee to Elon Musk. And hundreds of thousands of people are paying money every week to get that blue tick. We all like a tick. Because when you get the tick, you become part of a special group. The people with the tick. The in crowd. The ones who really belong. Now, in the book of Romans, this is one of the biggest issues at play. Who are the in crowd? What is the group with the tick? Who belongs, really belongs, to the people of God? Now, this question has serious vertical implications for individuals. Am I personally right with God? But Romans is very concerned with the horizontal aspect. Who else has the tick from God? What's the criteria? Who should I treat as brothers and sisters rather than strangers or distant cousins? Now, there was one group of people within the Roman church who were confident that they had the tick. It was the members with a Jewish background. They were from the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people all through Old Testament times. God had made special promises to their forefather, Abraham. He'd given them his holy laws through Moses with detailed instructions on how to live distinctively as God's people. From their perspective, the world was divided in two. The Israelites, who know God and live his way and deserve his blessing, and the Gentiles, everyone else, who don't know God, don't live his way and deserve God's judgment. But in Romans, the writer Paul has identified a problem. In the section we read last week, he said, yes, God is rightfully angry at the Gentiles who reject him and worship idols and do all sorts of wicked things. But you people of Israel, you who've been given the very words of God to guide you, you are actually guilty of doing all the same wicked things. And so we read his conclusion today in chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And this verse introduces a key idea that we'll be exploring today, the idea of justification. This is a word that has a lot of significance in Paul's writing. It's been the subject of a lot of controversy and debate in theological circles over the centuries. To be justified simply means to be declared righteous. And so then we have to ask, what does righteous mean? And I think righteous is a word that's actually got a bit of a negative tinge in today's English. But in the Bible, that word just means in line with a standard. Up to scratch. Worthy of a tick. That's righteous. Righteousness is not a legal status. It's a quality of a thing or a person. But justify 
is largely a legal word. In the courtroom, a judge is meant to justify the righteous and condemn the guilty. Justification doesn't make you righteous, but it declares the righteousness you already have. Okay, so having worked out those words, let's come back to Romans. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight by the works of the law. And that was a shock to his Jewish readers. They assumed that because of their religious knowledge and their performance, they were the in crowd, the people with the tick. But this accusation from Paul actually raises a bigger question. How is God going to do the right thing? It raises the question of God's righteousness. It seems like God is stuck because he's promised the Israelites that he will bless them But their behaviour means the rightful thing to do is to condemn them. How can he be both a righteous judge, but also a righteous promise keeper? Well, in this last section of chapter 3, Paul reveals what God has done. God's great solution, that thing that demonstrates God's righteousness. The law is not the solution, but Jesus is the solution. Let's look at the middle of verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, who God presented as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Let me tell you, this is a golden little passage. It's like a multifaceted jewel where the different aspects of Jesus' work shine out in different directions. Or we could think of it like a delicious cake made up of three layers which all connect and support each other. The base of the cake is Jesus' work as a sacrifice of atonement. The Greek word here actually links us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. In that system, there was a special tent called the tabernacle, the place of God's presence where sacrifices were offered. And in the center of the tabernacle was a sectioned off area called the most holy place. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark was called the atonement cover or mercy seat. And the the word used in Romans actually refers to that atonement cover on top of the Ark. You might have been here last year when we were studying Leviticus. And in Leviticus 16, we learned about the Day of Atonement. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and only on that day, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of a goat on the atonement cover. Now, we think of blood as a messy thing, which you have to wash off with bleach. But for ancient people, blood was a cleansing agent. It was the substance of life. Now, the Day of Atonement was like an annual spring clean to wash away the pollution of the people's sins from the tabernacle so that their fellowship with God could continue. But now, God has presented Christ Jesus as the means of that cleansing to occur. 
Now his blood is what washes away the pollution of sin, not just for one more year, but for all time. Now Jesus' atoning sacrifice then is the basis for redemption. This is the middle layer of the cake. Redemption is another word whose meaning has got a bit muddled in today's English, I think. In the Bible, redemption just means setting free. The Lord redeemed ancient Israel out of slavery in Egypt. In ancient times, if you ran out of money and you owed an unpayable debt, you'd often end up in slavery to the person you owed the money to. But if you had a rich family member, they could come down to the slave market and redeem you by paying the price. You were then flee from your slavery and free from your unpaid debt. Earlier in Romans, Paul said Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. Not just guilty of committing sins, but under the power of sin, enslaved by this force. But now, Jesus has come and by his sacrifice, he sets people free from their sins. He brings redemption, freedom. That's the middle layer of this delicious cake. And that supports the top layer of the cake, the icing, if you like. Justification. In God's law court, on the great judgment day, when the full truth about our lives is revealed, every one of us is worthy of condemnation. But now, those who belong to Jesus, who've been cleansed by his blood, who've been set free, redeemed from our sins, we can be declared righteous. We don't have any righteousness that comes from our own performance, but we can be justified based on who we belong to. The king who died and rose on our behalf. This is the opposite of what we all deserve. That's why Paul says we are justified freely by his grace. It's God's generosity in Christ that means we can be declared righteous. Not our worthiness or our performance. And this is true no matter what your background. You don't receive this generous gift from God by obeying the law of Moses or by adopting the Old Testament Jewish markers or having the right family background. No, the saving work of Jesus is received by faith. Now this is a delicious cake. It's a golden passage. Some scholars think it might actually be an early Christian creed or a hymn that Paul is quoting here. And I could preach a sermon on this passage and say, therefore, go and put your faith in Jesus. He will be the sacrifice of atonement that washes your sins away. He will set you free from your sin and guilt. In him, you can be justified before God. I mean, in him, you can experience eternal life rather than eternal destruction. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I do want to urge you to do exactly that. Reach out and get yourself a slice of this delicious cake. But actually, that's not the reason why Paul wrote these words to the Christians in Rome. They had already put their trust in Jesus. So why did Paul serve them this delicious cake? He shows us two reasons, actually. 
One is in the middle of verse 25. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Paul is explaining that God hasn't swept away the sin of his people, hasn't swept it under the carpet. No, he's made a way for it to be dealt with. So he can keep his promises and be a righteous judge. But there's a second reason why Paul gives us this rich description of Jesus' work. And it comes back to that question of, who are the people with the tick? In verse 27, he addresses the issue of boasting. Now, the thing about boasting is you can be on the giving or the receiving end of boasting. You can be the person who broadcasts your achievements and you feel superior about yourself. Or you can be the person who listens to someone else broadcasting their achievements and you feel inferior. And in the early church, there would have been Jewish background people saying, okay, look, you guys believe in Jesus and that's nice. But just FYI, I can trace my ancestry back to King David himself. I can recite the 613 commandments in the Torah from memory. All my life, I faithfully worshipped at the Jerusalem temple and brought thank offerings and sin offerings to the Lord. And Gentile Christians, who maybe not so long ago had been mixed up in all sorts of dodgy, pagan, polytheistic, idol-worshipping dodginess, they might have been thinking, ooh, those guys do seem to have a much more solid foundation for belonging to the people of God. They do seem a bit more in than I am. Now, the stuff the Jewish Christians were boasting about wasn't silly or trivial. It was actually really valuable stuff in that context. But boasting about it means saying, I've got the tick in a way that other people don't. I'm a member of the inner circle who really belong to the community of the people of God. And it's to demolish such claims that Paul has reminded them about the precious work of Christ. After laying out that beautiful cake, he says in verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. With that cake on the table, there is no room for boasting here. Verse 28 says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. But some of his readers may still have been unconvinced. And so in chapter 4, Paul brings in the big guns. He wheels in Father Abraham himself, the father of the Jewish nation, to back him up. Now, we read the whole of chapter 4, but we're only going to have time to just look at it really quickly. The, Paul, the question that Paul wants to ask in this chapter is, how was Abraham justified? On what basis was Abraham declared righteous by God. Paul's Jewish readers would have been well familiar with Abraham's story from Genesis. In Genesis 12, God first called Abram, as he was then known. He was an old man, 
He and his wife, Sarah, have been unable to have any children. He didn't know the true God from a bar of soap, but the Lord called him to leave his home in Ur and promised to make him into a great nation, to bless him, to bless the world through him. And so Abraham, 75 years old and childless, goes to the land of Canaan. The Lord repeats his promise in the next chapter. I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. Time goes on. Abraham gets older, still childless. In Genesis 15, the word of the Lord comes to Abram. Do not be afraid. I'm your shield and your great reward. Abraham is afraid. He says, Lord, how can this work? I'm, I'm still childless. But the Lord doubles down. Come outside. Look at the stars. See if you can count them. That's how many offspring you will have. Abraham is still old, still childless. But it says in Genesis 15 verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, we need to watch out for this word credited. Uh, that word has got a kind of a new meaning in the age of internet banking, of like zipping some money from your account to mine. Let me just tell you, there was no internet banking in Abraham's time. The Bible's not talking here about a transfer of righteousness, because righteousness is not a liquid that you can just send through a tube. No, the Bible is talking here about Abraham's faith being counted as righteousness. Some of the other translations bring this out a bit more clearly. At the point where he trusts God, Abraham is declared righteous. He is justified. He is given the tick. He is declared to be up to scratch. Now, two chapters later in Genesis 17, the Lord gives Abraham a sign of the covenant that he's making with him, the practice of circumcision. And that became a distinctive symbol of Jewishness. And in Genesis 21, Abraham's son Isaac is finally born, the child of promise. And the great nation builds up from there. Now in Romans, Paul wants to point out something important about this story. Abraham didn't get justified because he got circumcised. Can you see? His justification came two chapters before he got the snip. He certainly didn't get justified because he kept all the Jewish law, because the law came through Moses centuries later. No, Abraham here was counted as righteous simply because he trusted God. That was all that was necessary for him to get the tick. He had faith. And this is a lesson for us. With all that established, with Abraham having sealed the deal, I want us to come back and think about boasting. On what grounds do we see ourselves as really having a tick? And on what grounds do we judge others as having the tick? Now, we're Australians, and so outright boasting isn't really our thing. We tend to do it in much more subtle ways. I want to ask if there are things apart from faith in Jesus which we use as criteria for really belonging around here. Are there things that mark out an in-crowd at All Saints?
Could it be, I really belong, because I'm part of the holy trinity of All Saints, North Epping Public School, and the North Epping Rangers. I get the joke. Could it be, I don't really belong around here because I live outside North Epping? You laugh. But some of you are not laughing. (laughs) Maybe it's, I really belong here because I've been to Bible study every week of my adult life, even when I had three screaming babies in tow. Maybe it's, I don't think I do belong here because everyone else seems to have their life together, but I've got some serious mental health issues going on. Maybe it's, I don't really belong here because of my age. Maybe it's, that person doesn't really fit in around here because they don't know how to read or they have a drug addiction. These thoughts can creep in. But the Bible says a true understanding of what Jesus has done will exclude all boasting. There is no place for it. Is God the God of well-educated, lifetime church-going North Epping residents only? No, he is the God of the whole earth who justifies all kinds of people through faith alone. The writer Tom Wright says, The message is simple. All who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and should be eating at the same table. That is what Paul's doctrine of justification is all about. Now, I want to finish with a story from far, far away. You might remember the Rwandan genocide of 1994. Uh, In Rwanda, in East Africa, members of the Hutu tribe carried out mass murders of the Tutsi tribe. Uh, Between 500,000 and 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. At one town called Ruhanga... A group of many thousands of Christians had gathered for refuge. They were from various denominations, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, Baptists and others. According to the account of a witness at the scene, when the militias came, they ordered the Hutus and the Tutsis to separate themselves by tribe. The people refused and declared that they were all one in Christ. And for that, they were all killed. These people understood justification by faith and its true implications. They demonstrated that powerfully to the world. So let's be a church that does the same.